This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about decadence, which... Oh my God, no. <laughs> it's just, it was originally <laughs> something that I had been thinking about a fair bit and had identified because of Jim Collins' books, Good to Great and Built to Last, and where he talks about the kind of rot that happens kind of when society or, well, he was just talking about corporations, where the top basically becomes less and less competent because they don't really know what's going on in the bottom. And that was the only angle I was going to attack this with. But then we started doing some more research into this and it's given me like a full-blown existential crisis. <laughs> in the past couple days. So yeah, this is probably going to be maybe the first part of this because I feel like it's going to be an area I'm going to dive a lot more into in the future. And we'll have a lot more to say because it's apparently much deeper than we had both suspected. Yeah, it's not just about decadent sweets like chocolate cake or something. Like when you hear the word decadence, like what's the first thing that comes to mind? I mean, yeah, the marketing of like, ooh, a chocolate cake or like this. Often for some reason, chocolate is sinful and vanilla is like heavenly. Right. Yeah. Isn't that weird? It's rich. Rich and decadent. Luscious. I mean, I guess if you want to think about it, it's just like an overwhelming pleasure. Like it's just so much of it because like eating fudge, I guess they could describe as decadent because it's so heavy and dense and sweet. Yeah. Usually describing desserts. What else? decadent like lifestyles i mean ostentatiousness i guess would be also like kind of gaudy and just nouveau riche flashing their money i guess having just like everything all the time very hedonistic right yeah associated with pleasure excess it's just like an excess of like so much sugary sweetness and well i mean more to do with just general pleasure i guess a lot of time we should probably define it i've got a couple good quotes one i was just like scrambling to get down before we started recording Okay, so if you want to just look up the Google definition, it's moral or cultural decline as characterized by excessive indulgence in pleasure or luxury. That's pretty standard, but we can do a little bit better. There's, according to this book I'm reading, the book is called The Decadent Society by Ross Dutat. Dutat, I don't know how to say his last name, but he defines lower and higher. And the lower one is inordinately pleasurable experiences with food and sex and fashion, ranging from orgies and opium dens to the lower end of four-star meals and weekends in Vegas. He also has a higher definition, which is moral decay that goes hand in hand with overripe aestheticism and rampant hedonism, which in turn connects with a cowardly failure to make the sacrifices required to protect civilization from its enemies. Obviously, these bend a bit more towards conservatism about responsibility and sacrifice for the community and acknowledging that there are enemies, because I think people on the left have engaged with before deny that there is actually anybody wishing ill intent and wanting the downfall of whoever is trying to defend themselves, which I think is a bit naive even today right yeah yeah and even if you look at the word decadence the first part of the word has decay in it and so when we think of decadence in terms of like indulging in a dessert we often forget that part of that word is not just pleasure but decay and so by nature of the the word itself in its etymology i guess you can even say it's suggesting a decay that there's a decline and on the cultural level as you said it's a decline as a result of really not protecting yourself. Just like we're going to bask in the luxuries of our society and not really try to defend ourselves. And then you get taken over by the barbarians, for example. And there's historical precedent for a lot of this we can go into. I got lots of quotes, too many quotes. <laughs> but on a personal level, like you can look at the word like if all you ate was decadent chocolate cake, your physical body would decay. <laughs> Maybe your mental health would decay. <laughs> like there's tooth decay, you know? Any excess of pleasure towards hedonism without any sort of restraints is bad. It will decay your body, your mind, and your soul. Like if you're just going around having drugs and unprotected sex and just doing whatever feels good all the time, there is a cost that comes with that, which we've seen it. We see it a lot. That's why like church and stuff like that always kind of promotes not giving into these temptations. Although I think they go a little bit far sometimes, like the Catholics, where they deny it altogether, don't enjoy it whatsoever, because I guess moderation is not something they've ever heard of. Right. So the opposite of decadence is asceticism, which is like kind of the denial of pleasures, kind of like that, you know, the Catholic church ideals 
Aesthetics. Yeah, not to be confused with what the quote I just said, which was aestheticism, which is like excessive aesthetics, like appearance and beauty. They're different, yes. Aestheticism versus aesthetic. I can't even pronounce them differently. Yeah, I'm not going to bother putting them back to back because I'll probably screw it up too. So he does lay out in the book a couple of different ways that we can... I found it actually kind of hopeful because I was watching a bunch of talks about decadence and different historian people's take on what it is and what a decadent society is. And some of the really rather distasteful conclusions or at least correlations that they highlight. But here he actually gives a little bit of hope at the beginning of this book saying, and this is a quote, a society can be decadent without looming collapse. All that is meant by decadence is falling off. It implies of those who live in those times, no loss of energy or moral sense. On the contrary, it is a very active time full of deep concerns, but peculiarly restless for it sees no clear lines of advancement. The forms of art as of life seem exhausted. The stages of development have been run through. Institutions function painfully. Repetition and frustration are the intolerable result. Boredom and fatigue are great historic forces. How does a historian know when decadence has set in by the open confessions of malaise when people accept futility and the absurd as the normal then the culture is decadent the term is not a slur it is a technical label so he gives a few examples i'll just point out because like you might be like well what does this look like in actual presentation so a society that generates bad movies continually may not be decadent but a society that keeps making the same movie over and over again might be Cruel and arrogant leadership might not be decadent, but wise and good people in leadership that can't make legislation might be. And the final example is poor and crime-ridden societies are not necessarily decadent, but rich and peaceable ones that are exhausted, depressed, and beset by flares of nihilistic violence might be. And if none of this is striking home, then I think you haven't been paying enough attention to what's been happening in the recent decade. So would you say that we are currently living... In a decadent society? I mean, that book's thesis is that we are, and he has prescriptions on how to get around it in the end. But I haven't finished the book, so I couldn't say for certain, but it does appear, based on the research we've done, that we are in a decadent society, and the superpowers of the time seem to be similarly so. What did you find? Do you have anything you want to add from your research? Yeah, I guess there's the quote that I sent to you. The societies are born stoic and die epicurean. So that is a meaningless statement to a lot of people who are not <laughs> entrenched in philosophy. Right, who don't know either of the philosophies. Yeah. Yeah, and and what that means is Stoicism has a historical idea that you don't value pleasure, and I guess the same goes with pain. It's kind of a very hard-line philosophy to get through hard times. It works well in a warrior culture if you're being captured, tortured. To put it a bit more fine point and approachable, a society is born when people are willing to sacrifice pleasure in pursuit of the virtues of their life, where they try to do what is necessary through sacrifice to help the community and work hard, kind of like the Protestant work ethic. But it's saying that they die. It shouldn't say Epicureanism, because you can elaborate on that in a sec. But what they mean is like hedonism, people that forego hard work and just focus on pleasure and distraction. Right. Yeah. The Stoics were really all about public virtue above all else. Public virtue? What do you mean? Public virtue as in like duty to one's social role within the broader society, courage, kind of like warrior ethics. Serenity, like the serenity prayer. Letting go of what you don't have control over. Yeah. Courage to do the things that you can. Yeah. Not giving into pleasure too much. I think there was one, I think it was it wasn't Seneca, it was Marcus Aurelius, who was lying in bed. He was the emperor of the world, essentially, at that time. And he was lying in bed being like, but I don't want to get out of bed. And he's like, but is like a man's nature to lie in bed and feel comfort? No, just as an ant or a bee has to get to work, so must I do the things that need to be done. Very stoic. Perfect example. Yeah. And these kind of philosophies work really well among nations that are, I guess, defending themselves or more commonly just like taking over other nations. Or struggling to get up from the bottom. Yeah. And you see this in the Roman Empire kind of in its expansion. You also see this in, in very new societies that are just forming that really need this hardline public virtue to create people that are willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good. Now, Epicureanism was kind of in some ways the opposite of that, where it valued pleasure and it didn't really have this whole public virtue idea and it was formed by Epicurus in this idyllic garden where he just lived simply with friends engaged in simple pleasures on a daily basis and just enjoyed themselves really this is all well and good 
But well, first people are going to hear that and say like, "Oh, these people doing nothing, just having sex and no, actually playing games." He was actually celibate, surprisingly, and so it wasn't all about that. He was all about the simple pleasures being food, shelter, and friends. Really, the basic kind of it reminded me of Ikigai when we talked about Ikigai in that episode. There's a lot of overlap between Ikigai and Epicureanism, but it's often oversimplified as just kind of indulgence. And so that quote, as I said before, societies don't necessarily die Epicurean. They die more when people pursue an overindulgence of pleasure. Maybe, but it seems like from this whole thing of decadence, that is the simple takeaway, but it seems like societies die when they, okay, that's what this whole thing is about. This whole area is about the death of societies, kind of. So I think that's one of many symptoms. So the symptoms of a decadent society, according to, I think it was Sir John Glubb, who wrote a paper slash short treatise on the fate of empires in search for survival. He's a bit more conservative. This is like early 1900s. And by the very nature of this, it's going to be more center-right. It's people that are looking to preserve the things of value in society and want progress, but also need to know how we do that without destroying ourselves. So some of these are, again, I'm warning people, (laughs) these are not our thoughts, but they are things that need to be contended with. And some of them are arguments that I can't come up with an argument against just yet. So these symptoms of a decadent society are one, defensiveness, two, pessimism, three, materialism, four, frivolity. So just excessive waste and stuff that's not important. Five, and this is where it starts getting sticky, an influx of foreigners. Six, the welfare state. And seven, a weakened religion. And even on this podcast, I've talked about how the weakening of religion is something that I was like, yeah, at one point. But now I'm like, oh (laughs) no, this is actually really bad because then we have these other pseudo-religions stepping up for this stochastic violence from nihilistic corners that we've seen from like incels or whoever. Yeah. And so for you personally, it's like, yeah, so I don't need the religion, but for society, religion is a useful public virtue. And when it's absent, what takes its place? That's the danger that we on the more progressive left tend to overlook because it is still a hole in our psychology that seems like a God-shaped hole is what some people have described it as that people try to fill with. It's like going back to Camus with the absurd, if you want to dive into that briefly. No, it's all right. Well, I'll do it then, because the absurd is basically that the universe is indifferent and meaningless, and we are a meaning-seeking entity or creature that is trying to find meaning in the meaningless, which is what he calls the absurd, which for him, there's only three solutions. The first of which, don't do, I would recommend against, (laughs) is suicide. The second one is religion, and the last one is denying that it's purposeless, but I interpret that as finding meaning in things that we find meaningful, such as community or helping people or having kids, stuff like that. That was a really nice overview of Camus and absurdism. I was put on the spot too much to go there. So thank you for picking up the slack. (laughs) You're welcome. And and so my mind goes to Viktor Frankl in terms of logotherapy as a way to to, uh, create meaning in meaningless situations. Logos is in like, what is that again? There's a philosophical term. Logos, like uh, the meaning. Ah, purpose. Yeah. And I guess in decadent societies, that's one thing that goes away. It would be kind of a collective purpose. We're all in this together for this big broader purpose. We kind of become atomized, kind of individuals looking at more self-interest and and also polarized in many ways, as you can see, completely happening in our politics. Yeah, there was something to do with that in the political divide quote I have, which is, this is, most of these quotes are going to be from that Sir John Glubb paper, which will be linked. If you want to read it yourself, it's full of very existentially challenging things to think about. But the political divide one was, quote, another remarkable and unexpected symptom of national decline is the intensification of internal political hatreds. One would have expected that when the survival of the nation became precarious, political factions would drop their rivalry and stand shoulder to shoulder to save their nation. The Byzantines spent the last 50 years of their history in fighting one another in repeated civil wars until the Ottomans moved in and administered the coup de grace. True to the normal course followed by nations in decline, internal differences are not reconciled in an attempt to save the nation. On the contrary, internal rivalries become more acute as the nation becomes weaker, which we are not seeing now. Definitely not. Oh, no, no, for sure not. Yeah. And I want to kind of back up to that comment about foreigners because we can't just let that kind of hang there. I was actually going to go through those one by one. Okay. Can we go to that one? Because it's particularly standing out right now. So 
Okay, he's got arguments around it, a number of them, honestly. So this is another quote. One of the oft-repeated phenomena of great empires is the influx of foreigners to the capital city. Roman historians often complain of the number of Asians and Africans in Rome. Baghdad in its prime in the 9th century was international in its population. Persians, Turks, Arabs, Armenians, Egyptians, Africans, and Greeks mingled in the streets. End quote. The arguments he's putting forward for why this seems to be, it could be completely correlational if that's what you want. I'm looking at, I guess, the reasons that might have to do with it. And what he says in line with that are that there are people in the empire now, when the empire was doing well, it was likely as an empire is dominant over a bunch of different nations and will have incorporated some other peoples into the nation itself. As such, these people are there and can, if they're accepted as equal citizens, can thrive there. Even if they're lesser citizens, they still can do quite well because it's economically prosperous. But as that kind of declines and it loses its thrust forward, its historical thrust, the people living there can start to see the cracks and they start remembering the grievances of the past and they see that maybe this place isn't as good as it was kind of presenting itself as and they have one foot out the door where they can return to their ancestral nation. So they aren't as committed to helping recuperate this empire that dominated them. So it's not so much the cause of this. It just seems like a symptom as an aftermath of the empire starting to fall. It's like a very powerful person that's keeping everything held together through sheer strength, suddenly becoming a little old and frail and sickly. Suddenly the jackals are at the gates being like, okay, we want to get ours. It's finally time. Okay. So it's it's more of a lack of internal cohesion among various diverse groups once kind of being brought into a beneficial situation now starting to kind of fracture off and re- recall like, well, this empire dominated our land and then everyone is kind of bringing their own grievance to the table and now we don't have a common purpose anymore and it's easier to be kind of taken over in that sense like people are less willing to sacrifice themselves for the nation because now they have these internal conflicts it's like imagine america right now asking african-americans to sacrifice for the greatness of the nation it's not something that's going to go over well or like canada right now asking the indigenous populations to sacrifice for the great of the nation that's not going to go over very well it's going to go over like a lead balloon lead zeppelin so another reason is also because he points out that immigrants are liable to form communities of their own and one of the examples somebody gave again these are more conservative people and it's a very sticky topic, but I don't know how to refute these arguments that he was saying that third-ish generation people from the Middle East that were living in Europe, say Germany, were being radicalized by the influx of refugees, some of them coming over with their own ideological radical views and preaching that and starting to radicalize people. Because frankly, the middle class is not doing very well. The middle class is evaporating and becoming the lower class and the working class in general is being stomped on. And so when you're in that position, it can be very enticing to have somebody that's got certainty and seems to have a backing of a god perhaps but is selling you a reason why it's not your fault when the system is kind of telling you that it is because like in america especially it's like pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you've been doing your the hardest work you possibly can you're just like scraping by and somebody comes along and says you know what it's not your fault it's the system's fault the system is failing you here's an alternative system and here's how we're going to take it down through the system you're in so it's a kind of siren song that can radicalize people and it's likely to happen also to people within the nation like the people that are the dominant group, but the subgroups are, I think, in this, this argument to steel man it, more susceptible to these arguments. Right. I guess the problem is that there are various subgroups all radicalizing their own kind of factions that are kind of positioning each other as the enemy. And you could, you could kind of see this in, in various kind of kind of militia type movements happening in the US. Yeah, and with the internet and the ability to communicate so freely there's essentially pseudo-religious cults that act like terrorist cells because they believe that they're multitudinous, there's tons of them, but they're actually just like maybe dozens or hundreds and they're all scattered, but they have this collective digital community so that they can all act in unison if they decided like if the incels decided and I don't want to give them ideas, but I don't suspect they're going to be really listening to this, hopefully (laughs) They can be like, okay, this day we're all going to do this thing and each of you is going to do X, Y, and Z. And they could do that. And like, it's not just that group. It could be many groups that could decide to do a global action even to get attention. Like the thing is, because of these echo chambers, they can easily believe that they are actually much more powerful and like a silent majority, as Trump was trying to signal to, that they think that it's any day now the revolution is going to come, that they are going to get their just desserts, but they don't. They are obviously misled in that way. Yeah. Well, one hopes. One hopes. One hopes. And so what really kind of grasped to you about this existentially? I know when you were doing the research yesterday, you really kind of flared up quite a bit. What, what was that about? 
for you? Just that I had come into this being like, yeah, like when leadership gets really stupid because it has no connection to the bottom, bad decisions are made and the ship is running ashore or it's heading for the rocks and it's not paying attention to the lighthouse because they're under deck drinking and carousing too much. And if that's the situation, then it's like, oh, okay, well, that's something we can actually do something about. But this whole philosophy is like, that's only one piece of it. And all these other pieces are also present. And it made it seem like we're on the decline and that things are going to be basically that for those of us who are tired of living through historic events, that this is just the beginning and that there are many, many more to come. So that was like, oh shit, like there's nothing we can do. Everything's going to fall apart. Oh my God. Like, and I'm not in any position to do anything to help anybody. So what is to be done? And so it's like one of those kind of existential threats that I can't do anything about and just makes you freak out and you have to kind of like shove away from your consciousness every now and again so you can just get through the day. Wow. That's deep. And so what started out as like leadership is asleep at the wheel. They're out of touch with reality turned into it's all hopeless and I can't do anything. Very good reflection there, Steve. (laughs) Kind of. I think there were still prescriptions and like what we can do about it, but we're not done exploring what it is still, I think. So I'm going to go back through those symptoms and just kind of briefly go over them. We can just talk about them one by one. So there's seven of them. We already talked about the influx of foreigners. So the first one is defensiveness. So I think this is in line with nationalism, where with the decline of the country, they want to just really buckle down and focus on how the country is actually great. Let's make it great again. Like these foreigners are making it bad, blah, blah, blah. And it's very easy to be fractious and defensive about the things going on there. If anybody criticizes this society in an attempt to make it better, those people are going to be shouted down and it doesn't help. What do you think? We've already seen that. That's the whole Trump populist phenomenon there. And the left is critiquing the system. That's number two, pessimism. But we'll get to that in a sec. Right. And so the critiques of the system being perceived as like, not just as a way to improve the system, but as you're the enemy. And yeah. You want to destroy the system for what it is. And they're usually living, and this is where fascism arises from, having a glorified past that may not have ever existed, probably didn't exist, but that they want to return to. And usually that means like a monoculture of people maybe taking ideas from other cultures, but not having very many foreigners because they will upset social cohesion, which I guess there is some minor merit in that, but it's not one that I am comfortable with. Right. Yeah. And so the cynicism component, so you're saying in in societies that are becoming more decadent, there's more pessimism. Whatever the difference is between them. But yeah, pessimism is about things are not going to get better. Things are just going to continue as they are. There's no fixing the system. Kind of like what I have come across with people saying that they're not going to have kids because the world's going to be destroyed or why bother doing this or that because like everything's screwed anyway. So they've been beaten down into learned helplessness. But that goes back to like that quote I was talking about where it's not that people have no energy and are just kind of in a malaise, but it's more that people accept the futility, that's the pessimism, and absurd, which is like the fact that North America is, we're not really making anything of value. We're extracting value by making like basically bank institutions. It's really hearkening back to that because they think that it's over. And I'm just like, it is over if you accept it to be over. If you don't try to fix anything, if you see a boat heading for the rocks and you don't bother turning it or fighting the captain to try to turn it away from that, then yeah, you're going to hit the rocks because somebody has to do something. And that's the part that I'm like, ah, like, ah! What, what do we do? So I actually have a quote on the pessimism from that paper, if you want to hear it. Sure. So a community of selfish and idle people declines. Internal quarrels develop in the division of its dwindling wealth and pessimism follows, which some of them devour to drown in sensuality or frivolity. So they're feeling that everything's pointless. So why not just go and have an orgy and do some drugs and enjoy things while it lasts? Because tomorrow is not going to come. So live for today. YOLO. Yeah. Which I always found kind of funny to like turn that on its head, being like, you only live once. So look both ways when crossing the street. <laughs> you only live once. So make sure you wear your seatbelt. <laughs> oh, I love that inversion of it. Yeah. You do tend to like those. Yeah. And then I guess that easily feeds into materialism, which is focusing on like the decay of religion and decay of spirituality, or I guess sham spirituality is kind of popping up as we saw in like the new age movements, which was a reaction to the materialism of, I think the eighties and maybe probably before as well, but focusing on the material well being of society. And I think there's obviously a divide. This is not the entire society wide. This is more, I think some of these are prevalent all over. Well, actually it might be like nationwide as well, because like materialism could be like focusing on buying brands or showing off that you have this or that, or like going on vacations and flexing. Like we do all the time on Instagram and the top doing similar sorts of things, which leads to the frivolity, which is just like 
showing excessive peacocking with various things to show how successful you are. Like rap music features that quite a lot about like how they can just be as wasteful as they want because they're so successful. Foreigners we already talked about. The welfare state, I didn't find as convincing. I don't really remember the exact arguments around it. But yeah, they kind of painted it as being like excessive for some reason. I don't know why. That one I kind of just want to outright reject. And the final one is weakened religion, which I just touched on. Hmm. Yeah. And there's kind of an apathy that feels like it's surrounding all of this, like a lack of caring. It's just like, live for today. Yeah, that is very much part of it, yeah. Eat, drink, and be merry. (laughs) Or the people that are doing well, like that's what the lower people are doing, lower class. But the higher people are thinking, why bother changing the system? I'm doing well. I'm just going to keep enjoying myself and living this high life. This is never going to end. It's like the friends that I have that are earning more than 100K and they somehow have no savings and no drug habit that I know of or gambling. So it's just like, what the hell are you doing with your money? I don't understand. And if you ask them or talk to them about these things, they often, this is another symptom of it. They don't want to talk about these things. They don't want to acknowledge that the system is fairly broken because it's serving them well, I guess. This is the whole nature of conservatism, in my mind, that the system's serving me well. I don't want to challenge it because if I did, then maybe I'll end up at the bottom and don't want to be there. Right. But the conservative critique of decadence is one that does seem valid because they're looking at conserving historical traditions that served the society well before it was as decadent as it is currently, I guess you can say. Well, that's an issue in itself because like, how do we know which ones are actually true past? Like that's what the whole populist movement was trying to do, right? They're trying to go back to this glorified past. So then which ones are actually valuable and which ones are not? Which ones were part of our nation and actually succeeded in creating a better country for everyone there? And which ones were just the imagined ones that are feeding into current fears? Right. No, that's a good point there. For sure. And all of this reminds me of a quote by sociologist Max Weber. Of course. (laughs) Of course it does. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, Specialists without spirit, sensualists without heart. This nullity imagines that it has attained a level of civilization never before achieved. Yeah, I think that's another symptom that was recurring is that we think like a decadent society often thinks that it's at the height of everything and it was just amazing. I think they were talking about the Chinese society when it was at the top and the Europeans came over and showed them guns and weapons that they could use gunpowder for and the Chinese thinking they were so superior didn't adopt these gifts. They just kind of chuckled at them and tossed them aside as though they were toys and said these barbarians have basically nothing to offer us and just kind of convinced themselves that they were just way better than the Europeans who clearly were having a technological advantage coming in their favor and that didn't work out for them very well which is kind of how this works like they think that they're exceptional and that's why right now I'm kind of freaking out because people I talk to are like yeah but we'll figure it out and one of the symptoms is believing that just through ingenuity and intelligence we'll be able to be exempt from this historical trend but the thing is all of them seem to believe that they were exempt from this historical trend that they would be the ones that would be the exception and so that's partially it is like have we actually solved this or is it just like the hubris and arrogance of our not knowing history well enough like I I don't know I hope that we can pull back from the reins or pull back on the reins the book today talked about how it could result in fixing and a resurgence of art and technology and other things but it's hard to say whether that's the case it could take a war to actually spur that kind of growth right yeah and and so the the other part of that quote the specialists without spirit. It reminds me of something you said before. It's kind of a working in a kind of an apathetic state where your, your work feels meaningless, but very plush at the same time. Like you, you have a very plush, cozy work situation, which is completely meaningless. And there's like a boredom to it all. Like you're a specialist because you like, maybe you specialize in a very specific form of tax, law, accounting, auditing, whatever specialist area you're in but there's no spirit to it it's just like i'm moving numbers on a spreadsheet and it's all for nothing yeah and that's another symptom there's just so many of them that i'm just going to keep coming up with them that i don't have them all centralized there's just so many and one was like i said financialization of society based on a currency that isn't really backed by anything other than the government say so that is part of it because like what you're saying like moving the spreadsheets around and kind of like you're adding some value but really to what you're adding value to like this intangible thing that doesn't really help anybody kind of like how 
finance has gotten so big and imaginary that a lot of the value is just like, it's crazy. Like I was thinking about yesterday how our North American economy is basically becoming a monoculture where like if a disease comes in, say, okay, bananas, for example, bananas, there was the fake banana flavoring that we all know is as it is and how it doesn't taste like modern day bananas because the banana I was modeled after was wiped out by a banana plague, actually. And that was as a result of having such a monoculture, just having one specific type of tree that was creating the bananas. I think they're grown trees that had a blight happen and just wiped 90 something percent of them out. So we just don't really have that anymore. And luckily we were able to find other forms. But what's happening now is because North America's this financialized mess, this imaginary rat's nest that is really hard to get your head around and is purposefully opaque so that it's like a kind of elitist club for people to make money just by having money. It's just value extraction. I'm just really kind of winding down. Sorry, I'm still getting these ideas straight. My head's just swimming with them. We are basically opening ourselves up to this anti-evolution, anti-robust system where if something comes along and just smacks it hard enough, the entire house of cards can come down because it's all the same thing. It has the exact same weaknesses just like the banana trees did right and it reminds me of what i was looking at the other day the top employers in canada because that's where we live and going through that list there's kind of something in common among the top employers do you know what that what is? is that i Can't wonder imagine. what that is hmm. financial institutions which is actually like we're talking about financialization one of the things i read it's called throwing rocks at the google bus and it was talking about how we have done these things and you know offers a number of economic solutions and actual interesting currencies like ones that can only be used in the country or in certain regions until they've been stamped a number of times and the money expires x number of days after the last stamping so you're compelled to spend this money and once it's been stamped like 50 times, it can be exchanged for real currency, which can then be brought out of the country. But it helps the velocity of money. Like money is like water. It has most of its power when it's actually moving. And when it's stagnant and pooling, that's when it gets fetid and disgusting. So General Electric, I didn't know this. General Electric made a bunch of appliances, right, back in the day. And one of the things they discovered was that like most people didn't have the cash just lying around to buy appliances. So they thought, okay, we'll make up this system where we can help people by financing them, get them to do some down payments and get that kind of going so we can keep selling those while also making enough money. So it was a good innovation. The problem was that this is kind of basically textbook in, I think, Harvard Business Schools these days, that the end goal, if we listen to the core tenet of capitalism is, it's taking money from a low return to a place of higher returns. And nothing's a higher return than basically doing nothing but lending money and accepting vast amounts of value being extracted from these people. So the end goal for large corporations seems to be becoming holding companies. Facebook became Meta, which is a holding company. It just buys a bunch of small companies that keep making stuff and don't actually create anything anymore. Google's kind of becoming the same. GE did that because they saw that their financing was actually more profitable than making the actual goods. So they outsourced all that to China and then they are basically just a bank giving loans and stuff. So it's like we're not actually creating very much value. Value creation is a slower rate of return than pure value extraction. But value extraction is a very short-term strategy to appease, I don't know, stockholders or whoever to get as much as possible, as quickly as possible, so you don't get ousted. And the problem is, as much as we want to say this is big evil corporations, like if we saw like any arrests for banks and stuff, these people were doing what they were told they were supposed to do. They were doing the things that the system rewarded them for their entire lives. And so they didn't realize they were just breaking the system. They're just part of the thing. They're just following orders in their mind and following the incentives that we've laid out. So it's not individuals so much as it is a very broken system, which is partially why this was so existentially threatening to me. To you, particularly to me especially like i think because it made me realize oh i don't know anybody listening to this maybe because it's like there's no central bad guy that we can point the finger at and send to jail or attack because the system will continue even the people we remove now the incentives of the system are broken in such a way that anybody that steps into that role will likely do the same what makes you particularly vulnerable i don't know you didn't seem to react the same way so that's why i guess i'm thinking maybe, <laughs> maybe nothing well, you have an interesting solution, kind of opting out of that system in your own way. I mean, that's the land project idea. Yeah, I mean, that's basically being Epicurean, right? Like, because for those of you, I mean, the part that I, I don't know if you're aware of, the Epicurean experiments of like these, you actually ended up having like 400 of them, but it was all really kind of poo-pooed and called like a cult, and people had a lot of rumors about Epicurus. I can't remember how to say his name formally. They rumored that he had like orgasm 16 times in one night with like times. a bed full of virgins, whatever it was, <laughs> umpteen times. And the thing is, like you said, like he was actually abstinent. And the thing about his places was that even after the church came and took over and had like the, I think it was the Crusades, but they ended up turning these Epicurean locations into monasteries where, as we should know from history, that that's where a lot of that time's 
scientific discoveries and research was done. So it's not just pure wastefulness. It does seem like it's somewhere where if you give people the resources, talented people with curiosity will end up inevitably creating new things and discovering new things, but at a slower rate than just pure value extraction. And so like, I guess for me, I've actually kind of had this in my head. I haven't formally written it down yet, but this kind of charter. So on the land project, the goal is to bring people in who have ideas they want to pursue and helping them by giving them resources, the place, maybe funding, maybe coaches to build these things. And part of the requirement to get in part of the system is to agree to some of these core tenants that you're committing your business to as part of their charter, which would hopefully be unassailable. So things like the CEO can only make X multiple what the lowest paid person would make. Intellectual property is like, you can only hold on to that for like a quarter of the time that the law allows. You have to like kind of release it because that helps you spur more value creation, more propagation of ideas. What other things that you have to spend a certain percentage minimum of your revenue on research and development, just things that focus the company to make sure that it has to continue growing, continue making value and not become this kind of corrupted form of itself where all it's doing is holding on to the IPs as long as possible, intellectual properties, I should say, as long as possible and just getting most of its money by continuing to pump out garbage to do with those and pursue legal cases against anybody who infringes on it. So avoiding that. Yeah. And so that's your kind of dream Epicurean society that you would create. And I guess doing it on uh, inexpensive land is part of the goal too, because I mean, a lot of these business accelerators are situated in very expensive downtown core areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that behind that, I think, is that they have a bunch of entrepreneurs in the area and maybe there'll be conferences and stuff that can be gone to. But like most of the funding has, like especially programmers or like digital things, most of the funding seems to go towards the people working on it just surviving, being able to live and continue working long enough to produce the value that they're seeking. The price of rent and, and, and so forth. Yeah, I think also one of the things that throwing rocks at the Google bus pointed out was that people in that community tend to be hackers. And hackers are not just to do with programming. It's to do with acknowledging how a system works and exploiting it for your own ends. And that's kind of how a lot of the startups actually operate. There was one person he talked about that was a friend of his. She saw the current trends. She made a company. She started networking to do with that area, taught herself just enough, and then sold it just as a lark. It was just for a joke. And she became very rich because she just saw that this was where the market was going. And she thought she could do something that would sell to like Google or some other giant tech startup or giant tech conglomerate. So one of the arguments about decadence is that we're not actually creating any extra value. We're just kind of continuing to extract more and more value from the system. And part of that is that the illusion of advancement in, say, tech. Tech, we like to think there's huge breakthroughs, but sometimes it's just the illusion because somebody is really good at pitching their thing. Like Theranos, for example, is a notorious example, if you're familiar, where they were pitching this thing and giving ideas. It was to do with health. I can't remember exactly what it was. It's a a drop of blood as, as being a way to do blood tests rather than large vials. Yeah. And I think they were promising like really huge takeaways from that single drop of blood, but it was just outlandish things. And she was just a very good salesperson and is just one of the ones that got caught. But like a lot of this, it just seems like there's not actually much being created. It's mostly the illusion of creation so that they can be sold to these giant holding companies that are looking for places to put their money or like Netflix who keeps pumping out a bunch of trash instead of less stuff of higher quality. Right. So the antidote to decadence is value creation for versus continued and perpetual value extraction. I think one of the guys we were listening to, his solutions, his name is What If Altist. So I think What If Alt History is a weird name, but his solutions were personal honor. So the idea that life has a certain degree of value and dignity to it, apart from whatever station they're born in, and that this idea must be defended within yourself, because in a decadent society, it's going to continually say that like everything is meaningless, kind of a nihilist approach to things. But also he said like faith, personal honor and faith, faith being not necessarily in God, but in goodness and rationality, but also tempered faith, because Obviously, goodness gone too far led to like the Crusades, for example, and rationality going too far leads to arrogance and tries to overreach. And without faith keeping on the rails, it tends to not even be able to offer reasons why we should live. Right, right. And so temperance, but there's these virtues that it's it's almost like injecting a little bit more of what Stoicism was doing. It's, It's looking at public virtues. Yeah, I guess Confucius would have something to do with these things as well because he was about well his is more about like essential government controlling everything but it seems it's about how to be a good governor or a good community coordinator kind of thing but thinking about that centralized government what decadence one of the symptoms again i'm just going to keep tossing them out was that as 
the leadership becomes more and more divorced from the bottom. Like this is what I'm seeing when it comes to corporations. You have a bunch of people that go to Ivy League schools or just business school, and then they end up working at, say, the head office of a, a grocery store. They've never worked in a grocery store in their life, and they're the ones making decisions on how the grocery store should be better run, better optimized, how we can squeeze more out of these people. And to me, part of the problem is that like these people should, as they're onboarding, be required to work and live off of the lifestyle of people at that level. They get paid that amount. They have to understand how it works. Because everyone at that level, when I was working at a grocery store, they made these big proclamations that things were going to be better because of X, Y, and Z. And everyone on the front line was like, that's not going to work. That's going to last like a couple weeks and be gone. And they were completely right. And this is kind of happening on a national level as well, that we're having a bunch of people that are at the top being like, hey, this is the solution to that. But they are so centralized and divorced from everything else that they have actually no idea. And this is the exact criticism that they level against authoritarian or communist countries, that it's a centrally planned economy and that they can't actually know these things very well because there's no boots on the ground giving accurate information, just a bunch of sycophants telling you what you want to hear. But that's basically what this is becoming as well. Oh, I love that example of, and I think a lot of people could relate to this, that people above them or people at the top who are making decisions in companies are so out of touch with the frontline work. They make decisions that make no sense that put unnecessary pressure on everyone and get suboptimal results. You probably hear a lot of that at your job, I imagine. Oh, yeah, that's, that's super common in large bureaucratic organizations, particularly because you get more, just more people who are just more out of touch, I guess, and more levels and layers between the, the people. So it's like a big game of telephone, really, from orders from the top, although it was filtering down. And there's something to be said about academia that could be criticized here that the whole idea of champagne socialists, just kind of people in very cushy academic positions who've never really lived in any kind of impoverished way, have been very privileged. Same with white saviors as well. Right. People in positions of privilege who are providing kind of these solutions, like this is the way it should be. And I guess the word, yeah, champagne socialists are, I think that's a real thing. Not that any kind of socialistic critique is irrelevant, but a lot of it comes from that kind of a position, that out of touch decadent kind of position. What was the thing you said? Like people on the left tend to hate humanity. No. What was it again? People on the left tend to love humanity, but hate people. People on the right tend to hate this abstract idea of humanity, but love kind of their neighbor and the people around them. Yeah. Cause I think these champion socialists you're talking about tend to not often put their money where their mouth is. Like, I'm not innocent of this either. I introduced you to the term, the chattering classes, which is about just like you and I, essentially, until we start taking more concrete action. It's politically active, socially concerned, and highly educated section of the metropolitan middle class. So people who tend to live in, in or around cities, they're educated, and they kind of view politics as sports, something they talk about continually, and it's more of an intellectual practice, which kind of is us. something that we want to avoid. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to work towards being able to do something, but it's taken while <laughs> you're actually looking to change the system in some small contribution whether it takes on is another thing but yeah the chattering classes of out of touch people talking about the way things should be mm -hmm. oh man this is probably a fire hose of information for people that's how i felt when going through this because like every quote i had to stop and write down because i was like oh jesus <laughs> Like, so John Glove actually talks about how societies move forward. And this is in line with one of the theories that decadence comes from not knowing which way to turn for the next advancement. This is where I have to give Elon Musk, as much as I am contemptuous of him, some extra accolades, I guess, because he started reinitiating the space race, which was what was energizing us last when we actually had more of a North American cultural character of like pushing forward and like advancement and facing the final frontier. And then after space happened, after the moonwalk, basically that kind of all fell apart and we've since been adrift in just more decadent societies of just opulence and I guess entertaining ourselves to death. One of the things I was pointing out was like in Rome, what was going on was like bread and circuses is a phrase where they would give away free food and have circuses with like a ton of gladiators fighting animals and each other and all these things just to entertain people. And they would do this, especially at times of political turmoil where people were finally getting unhappy about stuff. And today we can see that we're really focused on like sports are bigger than probably ever, especially esports becoming a major thing now, capturing that market which used to not be into sports and entertainment with reality TV being like this drama that is meaningless and often scripted just to keep us complacent, kind of like a brief new world approach to society management. But John Glubb 
outlines six stages of empires, which are like the age of is the beginning of all of them. So one is pioneers going out and finding a new place, a new thing. Second is conquest. So conquering the thing that you've discovered. So these are very much non-decadent times in a society's age, like the beginning. Yeah. So like think about like North America, like the British Spaniards, Columbus coming over. So he came over as like pioneers and then they started conquering it, which for better or for worse, obviously this is a very controversial thing. Then it became commerce where they started having tons of trade and explosion of resources and all these things that were great from that, which then led to an affluent society. And then from the affluent society became like an intellectual society that started having more ideas. But the thing is that age lasts so short a lot of the time. And then finally that decays into decadence. So they have lived too long in prosperity and power. That selfishness takes off love of money and loss of a sense of duty. So uh, that is another symptom is like people, this is part of the education thing was quote, education undergoes the same gradual transformation. No longer do schools aimed at producing brave patriots ready to serve their country. Parents and students alike seek the education and qualifications, which will command the highest salaries. So say what you will about the serving your country. I, I don't think they mean like as a nationalist going out and like conquering as a, as a soldier. I think they just mean providing for your community, doing what is good for the country, the health of the country, not just the individual. Right. Yeah. The loss of these public virtues, public goods, and just kind of say, I'm going to get mine. You can see this idea and it is strategic on an individual level, like going to school for something that's going to get you the highest salary. Sure. So on an individual level, there's like the incentive structure of the system, but on the collective level, is it serving us in the long term? Yeah. You would actually, that reminds me of this other one, which is to do with like, you know, Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone. So this is a quote on self-sacrifice. Any small human activity, the local bowling club or the ladies luncheon club requires for its survival, a measure of self-sacrifice and service on the part of the members. In a wider national sphere, the survival of the nation depends basically on the loyalty and self-sacrifice of the citizens. The impression that the situation can be saved by mental cleverness without unselfishness or human self-dedication can only lead to collapse. Any reaction to that? Yeah. That's Putnam? That's not Putnam. That's actually from Glub still, but it very much reflects Putnam. It reminds me of that, yeah. Yeah, because like having a bowling league, like right now I run D&D, and for that to happen, I have to dedicate a lot of my own time and expertise in making this game, like behind the scenes, designing the game, having plans for how things are going to work, making sure the game is balanced, having a story for them to follow. It requires a lot of work, and that's more so than other things. Like a bowling club would be coordinating with the, the bowling alley, making sure that people are paying their dues, making sure you have enough people that are playing, making sure you have the right time, and teams and all that stuff, keeping track of the records. This all requires sacrifice that's not often being paid so that the community can have this luxury of joining together. But as capitalism continues, and most of us don't have enough time for that, we are stuck just numbing ourselves with the opium of the masses in one way. With on-demand television. <laughs> yeah, or actual drugs or religion or pseudo-religions to try to make it through the day. And so we don't have enough time. We're just atomized. So I think the best thing I can think of would be to find ways to commit yourself to the community. It doesn't even have to be big. You can just have like a bridge club every week or something. Bring back the bridge club. Yeah. But it is like just that small, like making sure that the community feels like a community, making sure you actually know the people who are living near you and you're actually trying to have some sort of community activities. And even if you don't know anything about any of this, you can probably find a way to insert yourself. Like we were talking in previous episodes about going to city halls for just like when they have open to public events just showing up can gain you a lot of influence so you can actually help to create those events through that perhaps yeah yeah and, and robert putnam talked about this in terms of the decline of he's tracking the prevalence of bowling leagues in america and showing that like nowadays there are far fewer bowling leagues increasingly and therefore hence the title bowling alone and if you think about it like it seems true like if you think of like our grandparents and beyond like particularly grandparent level maybe before that bowling wasn't so popular i guess it's more rural life but there were a lot of bowling leagues i mm -hmm. was also in a bowling league as a child <laughs> i was for one summer too yeah yeah but think about these days like if you were to go try to find a bowling league like, would it be as easy to do i don't know honestly i think a lot of these things are just seen as activities for children yeah. stuff that adults just don't do anymore or it shouldn't do and i think the myopia that happens, the short-sightedness that is part of how short-lived we all are, is that anything that's been entrenched when we were born or came of age, we think is the natural order of things. So we might think it's weird for adults to go to these things, but it's not. Actually, it's weird to not do those things. Our current society, like that, <laughs> remember that comic I sent you of a koala bear hugging a stump? Oh, I love that image. It's, it's a koala bear hugging a stump, shaking in fear, and quote says, society be like, that koala bear has 
mental health issues when all around it is a clear-cut forest. <laughs> and it's just like, it's blaming the individual for a larger systemic societal issue. I love that. It's right on. Yeah, it's way too on point. That's what we've talked about before, but like living in a sick society, it's not your fault that things are broken and that you're having a difficult time with it. I want to read you a quote and make you guess when do you think it was said and by who? So, quote, they deeply deplore the degeneracy of the times in which they lived, emphasizing particularly the indifference to religion, the increasing materialism, and the laxity of sexual morals. They lamented also the corruption of officials of the government and the fact that politicians always seemed to amass large fortunes while they were in office, end quote. Well, that can be applied to so many different times, couldn't it? It could. And this particular quote was from Baghdad in the early 10th century. So like, it sounds so modern, but it's just like this thing has happened continually again and again and again. Oh, it sounds like it could be right now. Yep. Another one is on intellectual debate. Men are interminably different and intellectual arguments rarely lead to agreement. Thus, public affairs drift from bad to worse amid an unceasing cacophony of arguments. But this constant dedication to discussion seems to destroy the power of action. Amid a babel of talk, the ship adrifts onto the rocks. Like ancient Rome or something? I would say that's even now, man. <laughs> like think about having like the political debates with people. I talk a lot more across the aisle, as the Americans would say, to people who are on the right. And the more insane they are on either side, frankly, the more is just so entrenched where the left thinks I am very conservative and the right thinks I am just like a crazy communist, but it, like I'm <laughs> not quite as far as either of them believes. And then I just got one final quote, just to shoehorn it in because I'm basically there. It's on philanthropy. History, however, seems to suggest that the age of decline of a great nation is often a period which shows a tendency to philanthropy and to sympathy for other races. This phase may not be contradictory to the feeling described in the previous paragraph that the dominant race has the right to rule the world for the citizens of the great nation enjoy the role of lady bountiful so this reminds me of the boomers that time not to like lay this at their feet because this again was of the system but it was a time that they thought there would be endless boundless prosperity just constantly on the upward trajectory the end of history everything is going forward and we have got it all figured out and that was seemingly the beginning of this decline in which we are currently trying to deal with right yeah the beginning of decadence no, this has been a fire hose. I apologize. It's just maybe we should have taken a little more time away for it for me to like have it process a bit more. There's even more stuff I could read out that was interesting. But yeah, but I'm not going to talk about that right now. I think let's go back to what can be done. What can be done, Steve? Well, first off, what can you do for others rather than just focusing on your private pleasures? and titillation, I guess, connected with how can you join some kind of community group and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Not necessarily a bowling league. Or a religion or a militancy. But not necessarily, but something. Maybe it's the bridge club now. <laughs> There's got to be more you know, interesting things that you could find. But finding something of that nature to connect and, and talk to people that may be different than, you, than yourself, which leads over to tolerance for... Diverse opinions, open dialogue and discussion rather than kind of feeding into this increased polarized landscape of if you don't believe what I believe, you're the enemy. I would further that and say tolerance of anybody that's not in the same class as you, especially if you're upper class, not regarding people at the bottom as stupid and ignorant just because of where they are. Acknowledging that they have just as much dignity and they deserve as much as you. And if we're living in the same nation, we should all be treated with the same kind of respect. Not like, just reminds me for some reason of like the thin fat debate where like thin people will lecture overweight people on how they should eat when these are naturally thin people who don't know very much about nutrition. Because like overweight people tend to know a lot more about nutrition, but just because they have been trying, but it is just give respect to everybody, it seems. And so another takeaway, yeah, like if you are at a position of power, then to actually live the experience of someone who may not, and it may not be feasible to like give up your salary if you have like actual bills to pay and you've already entrenched yourself in that lifestyle. But at the very least, working a day in their shoes people in the front line. Um, and I think maybe if you're on the bottom, when those people of privilege, especially like us included, try to talk to people in less privileged positions, it can often be met with derision or mockery for even asking the wrong question because we may not know. And I think as much as it can be painful to, I know like you don't have to be like their educator or whatever, but maybe a little more patience and compassion on both sides. Because if they're trying, that shouldn't be shot down with derision. If they're trying to reach and help 
the community or to understand more, so long as you think it's in good faith, try to engage with that because this is the only way we're going to move forward by having more powerful allies and allies in general to unify and focus on the ways that need to be improved, that we are all one country, one world if you want, but we have to figure out how to fix our own backyard before we go to other countries and try to fix them. Wow. What a nice conclusion. Good job. Thank you. Always, always giving me that compliment. So I'll, I'll just assume that it's one of my strengths and not just you being <laughs> super polite. No, it just feels like a natural. You've wrapped up the bow, you tied it up. We're good to go. Like a yep, sign sealed and delivered. Sign sealed, delivered. All right. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a heavier one. I apologize for any existential crises. I don't, I don't uh, triggered. Well, I do because I had to <laughs> deal with my own. But yeah, share, rate, review, do all those things. And thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Take care. Chocolate. Ooh, sinful.